the ideas, the leaders, the lives that are shaping Denmark and the world. From Blocks Hub in Copenhagen, Denmark, this is Global Denmark. This spring, Aarhus Denmark will host the 8th annual Internet Week Denmark Festival. It's a week dedicated to asking the big questions about technology. You know, what tech means for things like liberty, equality, fraternity, and of course, free speech. One of the people that will be on stage is author, researcher, and activist Jillian York. For over 10 years, Jillian has been sounding the alarm that big social media companies like Facebook make censorship decisions based not on democratic values, but mainly on shareholder returns, at times co-opting governments and at other times silencing those who are inconvenient for business. These companies have a surveillance machine unlike any other the world has ever seen, and they've become so powerful, so pervasive, that democracy is facing a dilemma. It's a case she lays out in her latest book, Silicon Values, the future of free speech under surveillance capitalism. When we think about surveillance, a lot of us, um, you know, regardless of what era we're from, either think about it in terms of the government surveillance of the past, you know, the Cold War era surveillance that was often um, done through wiretaps and through uh, through you know, in-person espionage, um, or the Snowden era of mass surveillance, the the collection by the U.S. government, the NSA, and the five or however many eyes countries we have now um, collecting massive amounts of data on citizens. But surveillance capitalism is is different in that sense because you've got companies, corporations, most of them public, um, that are you know, snapping up all of this data about us through the ways in which we share our photos or click through advertisements. They understand our behavior and now through, you know, many years of collecting this data on us are able to predict, our, not only predict our behavior, but also influence it, modify it, uh, serve us up advertisements that speak to exactly what we want in a given moment. I mean, I, I as somebody who is particularly susceptible to this these days in the pandemic, um, I have to say this is a very real phenomenon. Um, and again, one that I think because it's companies, because some of it seems so benign, I mean, what's so bad about getting an advertisement for a humidifier when you have a cold? Um, <laughs> you know, we, we tend to, to societally view this as benign, but it's actually quite insidious, particularly when you consider the fact that a lot of these companies are more than happy to share data and remove content at the behest of government. How does how does that work? You know, when you talk about social media companies being censor agents of censorship, what do you mean by that? Sure. So I view censorship, I think I should start here, as a value neutral term, which is to say that there's censorship that we like and censorship that we don't like. Um, and I would also, I mean, and, and you know, just a couple examples there, child sexual abuse imagery is censored by most countries around the world and as well it should be. But I think that we lose something when we fail to describe that as such. Um, the removal of that content remains censorship, even though it's something that we all think is a good thing. Um, on the other hand, of course, there's censorship that we disagree with. For example, I think that most of Europe would say that Facebook's rules against, um, you know, showing women's breasts are kind of silly. And so that's my starting point. And then, you know, just to give a little background here, I, I came to this issue of companies censoring content because I was researching governments censoring the Internet um, back around 2008. And I was working at the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard and, you know, was very aware of 
I would say about 65 to 70 countries and the methods that they were using to censor speech. But all of a sudden, the, this shift happened where I was starting to hear all of these examples of YouTube taking down a video of protesters in Tunisia or Facebook removing a page that was calling for the separation of church and state or uh, sorry, religion and state in whatever country. Um, and all of these examples started to really make me wonder, OK, what was going on? What kind of authority did these companies have? And it turns out that it's twofold. It's both companies removing speech because of their own cultural values and it's companies removing speech because governments ask them to. Maybe the best way to understand this is, is, is with some concrete examples. Can you can you give us some of those? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, there are plenty of these examples that have been well known over the years, such as um, Facebook taking down the terror of war image from Vietnam that was you know, famously published on newspapers um, back when it came out in the 70s. But let me give you a couple of lesser known examples. Um, so I've been thinking a lot, and we're, we're right at the anniversary of the, um, the Egyptian uprising from 2011, and back then uh, there was this page that, that called We Are All Khaled Said. It was in memoriam of Khaled Said, a young man who was um, brutally murdered by police in Alexandria in 2010. And uh, the page that eventually called for the uprising on January 25th had actually been removed by Facebook. And the reason for that, uh, before the uprising, that is, the reason for that was because the people who'd created that page were using pseudonyms. They weren't using their ID names, their real names, quote, quote. Um, and as such, Facebook said, you know what, we don't, we don't believe in having a, a pseudonym. We don't believe in multiple identities. And so they removed that page. And I think all the time, you know, what had, what might've happened if that page had been permanently removed? Um, in the end, you know, some folks stepped in, some folks I know actually stepped in and helped get that page put back up, um, with a new administrator. But, um, there are situations like that, uh, even more recently, just this past summer, there was a protest, um, again, related to Egypt, this time um, standing up in Berlin for, in support of women who'd been arrested for their use of TikTok in Egypt. And that page, again, right the night before the protest was supposed to happen in Berlin, the page disappeared. And again, it was because of some sort of content moderation error by the company. But there have been instances in which um, Facebook didn't react, for instance, the very well-known situation in Myanmar. Yeah. Um, it must be a difficult thing for Facebook, I mean, to try to find that line, is it not? Yeah. So, I mean, let me say that I do believe that this is a very, very difficult problem. Um, dealing with speech at scale, this is something that's never been done before. Um, in the past, we've had states deal with speech and almost always after the fact, or let's say always, pre-digital, it was always after the fact, right? Speech was was rarely, you know, you can't catch it before something's been spoken. Um, and even the seizure of newspapers is still historically quite, quite rare, right? Um, but when dealing with speech at this scale, Facebook's got billions of users, you have to create systems that are able to handle these things quickly. And so, a couple of things here. One is that it's really, really difficult to make rules that apply equally and evenly to everyone. Um, but in some cases, these companies aren't even trying. And we saw that with Trump, which I'll get to soon, of course. The other thing here is that these companies, you know, even though, again, hard problem, they don't really put much effort into dealing with countries like Myanmar that are not particularly profitable economically. And so there's a huge difference in how these companies moderate speech in, say, Germany or the United States compared to how they deal with it in, say, Lebanon or Myanmar. Um, 
And I think that that to me is really where I, you know, why Facebook in particular makes me so angry because they're, they've been aware of these issues for more than a decade. We were making them aware of these issues in, in as early as 2010 that I recall, um, but they just choose not to listen. Have you been in touch with the social media companies? Uh, we're talking a lot about Facebook now, obviously, because they're the, ele- <laughs> they're the elephant in the room, right? But you must have, have, have been at a fairly high level, I could imagine, in touch with these companies. What do they say to you? Yeah, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because I think I was in touch with them at a higher level 10 years ago than I am now. Um, they've really closed ranks. But yeah, I, um, I'll just to give a quick story here. In 2010, Facebook reached out to me um, before I worked at the EFF and when I was really, frankly, just a blogger. Um, they reached out to me because I had found a bug in their systems where you couldn't create a page with the word Palestinian in it. And, you know, whatever it was, whether it was human bias that put in that that word into a filter or whatever had happened, um, they reached out to me after I'd written about it and said, hey, you know, we, we just wanted to open up a channel of communication with you. Um, and in those early years, it was fantastic. You know, I really like I was I was brought to the office a number of times. I met with Sheryl Sandberg. I was on email threads with the, the general counsel. Um, but over the years, you know, they sort of shifted folks like me, you know, to be fair, as they reached out to more and more organizations, folks like me got shifted down the chain. Um, and now, you know, I'm often tossed around and, and in touch with various people. But I've also been in touch with other companies, uh, Twitter, Reddit, Google, certainly, um, especially in those early years, um, as well as some of the smaller companies like Medium, which generally does a really good job at content moderation. Are all these companies, uh, you talk about surveillance uh, capitalism and we talk about censorship, are they are they all doing it? They're all doing it, but it's a different scale, right? So, I mean, Reddit, I would say, is much l- less engaged in surveillance capitalism, but they're also owned by Condé Nast. So they don't have to do things that Facebook has to do to make money. Um, Twitter is certainly engaged in it, but to a lesser degree. And you do have much more control over your privacy on that platform because they've had folks who work there who care about those things. Whereas Facebook has, you know, over the years acquired dozens and dozens of companies. Um, they're, you know, they're the one of the most profitable companies in the world, definitely the most profitable social profitable social media company. Um, and so and the degree to which they're doing it across their various platforms, so Instagram and Facebook, um, really gives them just so much more of an advantage in terms of the data that they have on their users than say Twitter, which, uh, I mean, I've looked at my advertiser profiler on Twitter recently. It still thinks I'm a man and I've been using the platform since 2008. So I consider that a, a victory against surveillance capitalism. Would yeah. you go so far as to say that um, Facebook in particular is guilty of human rights violations? Yes, I would. Um, I think that bo- on both sides, right? So I think that Facebook both has allowed you know, murderous um, government officials to use their platform in really disastrous ways, Myanmar being the the best example of that, Um, but also in terms of the ways in which they curb speech around the world. Um, And I would say that, you know, the most poignant examples of this to me that would come up against 
potential actual human rights law, um, though I'm not a lawyer and I should state that outright, um, is the ways in which they comply with states that are violating human rights to begin with. So um, the, I think one of the biggest and most important examples here is Turkey. Turkey is the world's biggest jailer of journalists. It is a massive human rights violator, both inside of Turkey and in other countries, most recently um, with the conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia, uh, less of a conflict, more of an attack, let's say. Um, and Turkey is has been, right, I mean, Turkey really kind of set the stage for how companies remove content at the request of governments. They started back in 2006 or seven, uh, demanding that YouTube remove this or that video, most of which, um, I was looking back at this history recently, most of the videos that they were upset about were, you know, simple football hooligan videos that were mocking Ataturk or Erdogan. Um, but over the years, uh, Turkey has become one of the biggest requesters of content removals, and this is in direct violation to their own commitments to international human rights treaties. So Facebook being complicit with that, and uh, again, not just Facebook, but also YouTube and Twitter, um, really strikes me as, um, yeah, coming up against human rights violations. In the case of Turkey, what do they say to Facebook? Um, take down, or, or to, to YouTube, uh, as you mentioned, take down the videos, take down the content, or else what? Or else we'll block your website and you can't make money here anymore. So Turkey is one of the biggest e-commerce markets in the world. And back in the early days of this, um, now I, I feel like I gotta explain this shift. In the early days, it, there there was only that blunt object available. You, you couldn't, um, you couldn't easily block an individual video in Turkey. So if you were YouTube, you had to remove a video entirely or risk getting blocked by a country. Over the years, the technology changed and the willingness of companies to IP block or geo block content increased. And so what happened was that YouTube kind of pioneered this method of instead of taking this video down for the whole globe or getting blocked by a government, we'll just take it down for this individual country. And that's, that's pretty much the method that we see these days. There are some exceptions, but for the most part, these companies actually, rather than remove a video or a post entirely, they just block it for a given country so that, that the citizens of that country um, don't know that it exists, but the rest of us can still, still see it. And one of the more insidious examples of this, um, to me, came in 2017 when Saudi Arabia and Qatar were embroiled in uh, a political disagreement, and a bunch of companies, including Medium, including Snapchat, removed Qatari journalism websites uh, for Saudi Arabia, so you couldn't see them in Saudi. And to me, that violation of of you know stepping on journalist speech was kind of frankly a little new. I mean we've seen it happen a bit before, but um, not to that degree, and that really opened up the floodgates in my opinion. Do you know anything about how this censorship actually takes place, the nuts and bolts of it? I mean, is this a case-by-case -case basis? Does a diplomat from the Turkish government ring to call Facebook and and say, hey, take down video uh, hooligans at the at the football game? Is that how it works? Do you know anything about the nuts and bolts of it? I do, yeah. There's a few different ways that it happens. And the good thing is that companies are actually pretty transparent about this. They all produce, not, well, not all, but the ones we're talking about produce transparency reports where they break down where these requests come from. So um, yesterday I happened to be looking at, I was teaching a class and I was looking at Google's transparency report for Albania, um, kind of a random example here. But um, when I was looking at the Albanian example, the, the content removals came from the judicial branch, the executive branch, um, direct court cases and a few came from law enforcement. So that's kind of the range of it. These are usually, you know, um, 
I, I mean, I would say letters, but actually all of these platforms have kind of backend submissions platforms for governments to use. Um, so usually it's done through legal processes, but there are exceptions. Um, and one of the more famous ones that I write about in my book comes from 2012, where the State Department in the US called up YouTube to ask them to remove a video. And YouTube said no, but then they kind of capitulated and blocked it in a couple of countries where the State Department was concerned that that video might spark riots. And that example to me was just unbelievable that the U.S. government was was kind of making these decisions for other countries when their governments weren't even asking for the content to be removed. Yeah. Why aren't more people talking about this? <laughs> uh, well, I think part of it is surveillance capitalism, the fact that we're all you know, constantly using these platforms and our attention spans. I mean, I, I've got the attention span of, I guess I would say a flea, but I hear that they might have better attention span than I do these days. Um, I think that's part of it. We're all really caught up in this and we're, we're trying to keep, our brains are trying to keep track of sheer amounts of information that, has, you know, just unprecedented. Um, I can't tell you how many news articles I read every day. And that's in addition to my own thoughts going out on Twitter and, you know, that video that I wanted to watch sitting open in my tabs. Um, so I think that's part of the reason. But I think another part of it is that, frankly, people in the U.S. and Europe tend not to care about news uh, like the or situations like this until it affects them. And so, you know, I've done probably 30 media appearances in 2021, um, more than ever before in a period of time like that, because these platforms went after the U.S. president instead of, say, 20 Burmese generals or uh, Ayatollah Khamenei, all of whom, you know, have been um, removed by these platforms in the past. Are you getting the most out of your time in Denmark? Pick up the printed copy of the English language newspaper Copenhagen Post today to access relevant news and event information guaranteed to enhance your working and family life. Was it okay for Twitter to ban Trump? Ah, well, it depends on the lens through which you're looking at it, honestly. Um, I'll be honest, I think the feeling that I experienced that day was schadenfreude, uh, you know, the happiness um, for someone else's misfortune. But um, there's a couple ways to look at this. On the one hand, it was perfectly okay within the law. Uh, the U.S. law grants companies the ability to curate their platforms as they see fit. Um, and that is, you know, that's the First Amendment. That's not Section 230, which we hear a lot about, but we also hear a lot of misinformation about. Um, so, you know, platforms have the right to speech as well, and that means the right to take down speech, which I understand is often a um, confusing concept in Europe where <laughs> that's not quite how things would work. On the other hand, should they have taken down the president? I mean, for me, it's quite troubling that a corporation has the power to silence a world leader um, and not in general. I mean, if this, you know, if this had been a small platform that took off that took Trump down. Okay, you know, but these platforms have become so central to our lives and the way in which we access information that the example of Trump may be righteous and it may not be so troubling to many people. But again, we can't think of this in a vacuum. We have to think about what it means when your local mayor is taken down off Twitter because of a mistake or when, um, you know, uh, somebody at the UN is removed. Um, I think that you know, we we can't just view this as Trump because he's not exceptional in so many ways.
what's your own opinion? Is it is it a good thing or not a good thing that that, that Trump is is has been banned because it is a form of censorship? Yeah. Oh no, it's absolutely a form of censorship. I mean, I think my opinion again is complex. I don't think it's yes or no. Um, I think in the short term it was probably a good decision. In the short term, he was clearly going to cause more violence to happen in the United States. Um, but when we look at this from a long-term perspective, I mean, will there be archives of his tweets? Will we be able to analyze what he said uh, in the future? Will we have this in the history books? Um, those are important questions. And so I think we can't just view this as a short-term satisfying, uh, sorry, a short-term satisfaction as satisfying as it might be, um, including to me, I, I mean, I'll admit. But I do think that, again, um, it's it's really important that we view this through a long-term lens. Um, and I guess I, I'm never good at using this phrase right, but kind of make sure that we're not missing the forest for the trees on this one. But it sounds like in some way you're not alarmed or you're not um, surprised that Twitter chose to do this because they've been doing <laughs> it in other uh, situations for quite some time. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. I'm not alarmed. And in fact, if anything, I'm, I'm a bit cynical about this because what took them so long? Why did they wait until he was almost out of office when actually the things that he said those days probably violated the rules less than things that he'd said during his, you know, the four years of his presidency? Um, that's where my cynicism comes in. And I kind of feel like these companies waited until it wasn't going to um, harm them as much to take him down. What's the big harm in taking him down a couple weeks before he's out of office? Um, so again, there's all of these different elements at play. The short-term prevention of harm, really important. The waiting until um, it wouldn't cause that much harm to the companies, mm, I mean, that's, yeah. <laughs> mentioned a little earlier uh, Section 230, which there is a lot of talk about in terms of social media companies. Can you explain what that is for the lay person? <laughs> yes. So um, it took me years to get there. So I, I have to say, you know, I understand why it's such a tricky law to understand. Um, but it really is only 26 words. And it basically says that no provider of um, the word, the language that it uses is an interactive computer service. And that's what kind of trips people up. But think about it as an intermediary, a platform that hosts uh, third party content. So it says that none of those platforms should be treated as the publisher or speaker of information provided by another uh, person or another information provider. And basically what that means is that online intermediaries are protected from civil liability for, and not actually not just civil, but a range of laws that might otherwise hold them responsible or liable for what they publish. And this basically is the law that has allowed competition, sorry, not competition. This is the law that has allowed these platforms to grow and flourish. Um, it's allowed innovation. It's allowed, it's permitted far more speech than would have happened without the law. Um, so it is really an important law um, that, you know, we, I don't think getting rid of it is the right answer to the problems that we're presented with right now. Um, and in fact, just to illustrate that point, there's a the vast majority of the world's countries do not have these types of intermediary protections. And there's a famous case, um, at least famous to me, from the past decade in Thailand where a blogger was tried in court and they were, they were trying to hold her liable for things that people had said in the comments on her blog posts. Um, and so one really important thing to remember about Section 230 is that it doesn't just protect Facebook and Twitter. It also protects your personal website, which is something that a lot of people don't recognize. 
good or bad thing, it sounds to me like you're saying it's actually a good thing and it shouldn't be repealed because there's been a lot of calls for, for repealing this. Yeah, there's been a lot of calls for repealing it, but there's also been a lot of Republicans and Democrats who don't even understand what the law does. Um, and you can see that in the way that they speak about it. Um, obviously, under the Trump administration, there is just absurdity being spread about this law. I trust the Biden administration a little bit more to do their research, and they have brought important, really smart people on their transition team. And yet, at the same time, um, I think that they're kind of just leaning into calls from the public that and a public that doesn't really understand what this law does. Um, so for example, this repealing section 230 would not prevent hate speech from flourishing on these platforms. And that's something that I think most people don't understand. Um, it would also, most platforms probably like would not really be able to host much user content at all, or would, would rather, sorry, would rather choose not to host much user content out of fear of liability. And so I think that, yeah, repealing Section 230 is a terrible idea, and we need only look to uh, the 2018 law, SESTA-FOSTA, to see why this law was meant to, or it was promoted as a way of um, uh, stopping human trafficking and particularly sex trafficking, but it's actually had a massive chilling effect on the speech of women, LGBT people, um, sex workers, uh, a lot of people who, especially during the pandemic, have suffered not just personally, but also economically because of this terrible law. When you say it wouldn't, it wouldn't prevent hate speech, can you explain that a little bit more? Sure. So, I mean, it would certainly curb the amount of hate speech online, but it would also curb the amount of political debate online, the, the amount of art, art online, the amount of other expression online. So I think, first of all, we have to weigh those things. But second, there's no way at this point at scale that Facebook would be able to you know, actually moderate that content well without going down entirely as a site. Um, and sure, I mean, some of us might love to see Facebook fail, but the the effect that Section 230 would have, on, or repealing Section 230 would have on the broader internet, um, I, you know, I think what we would end up seeing is a lot more underground platforms like um you know, Aitkun and 4chan hosted in other countries where they're outside of the law, um, hosting hate speech and allowing it to flourish on their platforms, which we're already seeing. And so I guess what I'm saying is not that not that it would prevent Facebook um, from hosting certain types of speech, but rather that it would not cure the Internet of the problems that we're seeing here. And it's certainly not going to fix society at large. The fact that Facebook servers are where they are, or at least Facebook is incorporated where it is, does this not mean that Section 230 in American law is de facto the law that governs Facebook in the entire world? Um, yes and no. So it does obviously have a huge impact on the rest of the world, but there are other governments that have stepped in to create laws that do, uh, that do enforce liability on platforms. So I'm in Germany. Um, and Facebook, I don't believe Facebook has servers here, although I, I, I could be wrong about that, but they do have staff here. And there's a German law called NetzDG or the Network Enforcement Act that requires platforms over a certain size. I, I always forget the number, but I think it's a fairly small one, 3 million users, something like that. Um, platforms over a certain size have to remove hate speech and certain other um, illegal content, in content that's illegal in Germany, from their platforms within a 24-hour period. Um, and so what this means is that Germany, or that these companies have invested in more employees in Germany to remove this speech or be held liable for failing to remove it. So it is still possible for other governments to impose liability on these platforms.
And again, you know, I, I'm, I don't want to come up against the, the concept of state sovereignty here. I think, you know, these like other governments have the right to do what they want to here. But when we look at this from a global perspective, I do think that this can have a chilling effect on speech. And we've seen it in the way that Turkey and Russia and Hungary and Romania and a number of other countries have tried to replicate the German law, but without the same types of democratic protections that Germany has. Um, and so, you know, on the one hand, can we trust Germany to kind of get this right? Maybe, probably. Um, but is it going to have a chilling effect when these types of, of um, uh, laws are imported throughout the world? Absolutely. Mm. Jillian, you've described yourself as an activist. What do you want? What would you like to see happen? <laughs> I want to see more power put in the hands of users. So, you know, I'm I'm skeptical of censorship broadly. That isn't to say that there aren't cases where it's necessary, but I, you know, coming up in the United States, why on earth would I ever trust my government to censor speech? I mean, I've lived through, you know, I'm, I'm not that old, but um, Bush, Clinton, the other Bush, uh, Obama, now Trump, and now Biden, and we see in the U.S. politics flip-flop every few years, which could also mean the um, the rules around speech flip-flopping every few years if the First Amendment didn't exist. And so, again, why would I trust my government? But at the same time, why would I trust these unelected you know, boy kings um, of Silicon Valley to make these decisions either? And so what I want to see is power put in the hands of users, both in terms of contributing to what the rules are on these platforms, but also in being able to curate their own experience. So right now we're manipulated by these algorithms that just feed us whatever they think we want. Why not put that that choice into the hands of users to tell the platforms what they want? I mean, especially with the technology that these platforms have now, um, they use like, for example, automation to detect imagery on the platforms. Let's say I have a fear of snakes. Why can't I just click on the snake filter so that I never have to see snakes again? Or if I live in a country in Europe, why can't I click on the nudity filter so that I can see adult legal nudity on these platforms? But instead, we've got these centralized you know, decision-making processes happening with, frankly, mostly white, mostly American, largely male, largely Ivy League-educated groups of people who are doing this behind closed doors without real user input. But I would say that Facebook's answer to me would be, but Jillian, we already do that. We consult with users all around the world. And the problem that I have found in that process is that Facebook in particular really likes to play both sides. Um, and so when they can, when they say that they consult with users around the world, what they usually do is actually consult with, you know, a couple of American groups on different sides of the aisle. Maybe they'll bring in a dominant group from another region of the world. Um, but when I, you know, I work with activist groups, NGOs, throughout the Middle East and North Africa, as well as, you know, sometimes in other parts of the world. And most of them do not feel like they're actually being consulted. They feel like the groups that are consulted about the problems that affect their regions are usually U.S.-based groups. You have come with some um, recommendations um, for how this could be done, a model for how this could be done. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. So I think that, you know, a couple things. First, I forgot to mention this, but I think this is really important. 
these platforms, there is so much more that they could be doing right now in this very moment to be more transparent about the decisions they make and how their policies are um, implemented and, you know, and ensure that users have due process. And we've actually set forth a set of principles called the Santa Clara Principles on Transparency and Accountability and Content Moderation that provides a baseline minimum for these platforms. And most of the platforms actually endorsed these principles in 2019, but only one platform has actually implemented them in full, and that's surprisingly Reddit. Um, and so, you know, these companies do know what they have to do. We've been telling them this for years, and they're fully aware. But in terms of the other, the new ideas that I'm proposing, um, again, I, I can't take credit for all of them because I, you know, my learning comes from working again with activists and groups all over the world. And a lot of the best ideas are coming from the global south. And I feel like it's really important for me to say that um, because I realize I'm getting a lot of this attention right now, but I'm informed by the people that I work with and meet. And a lot of the things that they're saying is give us a seat at the table. Um, and that's the biggest one. It's it's a simple it's a simple thing to do, but again, these companies have the resources to do it and it wouldn't be that hard to ensure more inclusion. And then I guess, you know, the, the, the really obvious one here is, um, you know, look at the, look at the executive levels of these companies and look who's at the table. There's no diversity there, not real diversity. They might have, you know, um, US diversity, but when we look at the languages spoken, the life experience, the, the, the types of educational backgrounds, uh, only a couple of companies are even really making progress on this. So I'll give Twitter a little bit of credit here. They've, they've diversified their executive level um, and as well as their engineering teams, but Facebook still really failing at this. Hey, let's take one final break and we'll be right back. <laughs> Studying for an executive MBA at Henley Business School in Denmark is an intense and rewarding experience. If you want to achieve the best possible outcomes in business and in life, Henley can give you the skills and knowledge you need through the Henley MBA. For more information, visit henley.dk. Jillian, you live in Berlin. Why why don't you live in Silicon Valley? <laughs> uh, well, when I started working in this space, I was in Boston. I moved out to, to San Francisco for three years with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not going to, I don't want to insult the city. Um, I didn't really love it there. And, um, but the, the bigger piece of the puzzle for me was just how far it is from the rest of the world. Um, you know, I think that Silicon Valley, there, there's definitely a bubble there. And I felt when I was in San Francisco, not only, you know, was I spending half my life on airplanes to get to Europe and the Middle East, but I also just felt like there wasn't really an international perspective being had there. Um, and it was important for me to not lose sight of my own ideals. And so, you know, I mean, I could have picked Berlin out of a hat. The truth is, it is a much um, it is an easier country to to migrate to than most. Um, but really, yeah, what it came down to was wanting to be closer to what I feel is the center of the world, um, which is, you know, not Europe per se, but the places that I can get to from Europe within a, a four or five hour flight. <laughs> how did you get into this? What's your own background? I mean, how, how does one become an uh, <laughs> online censorship activist, researcher, writer like you? Um, I like to joke sometimes that I'm the Forrest Gump of the internet and I've just been in the right place at the right time so many times. Um, the truth is I studied sociology as an undergrad and then I moved to Morocco to teach English because I didn't know what else to do. Um, and while I was there, I actually, the, I think the first day I was there, I realized that Morocco was censoring the internet. Um, I had a live journal at the time that was a, a kind of blogging or diary platform back in the, I guess it still exists, but 
in the early 2000s. Um, and I went to, you know, post to my live journal, hey, I've arrived in Morocco and I couldn't get to the website. And so I, you know, got in touch with a friend back home who explained to me how Internet censorship worked. <laughs> um, and that got me interested. And the truth is that I ended up starting a blog on a different platform writing, um, you know, often translating pieces from French and sometimes Arabic into English, things about Morocco that really weren't being told in the international media. And through that process, I got connected with uh, a regional network of bloggers that had really just been kind of coming together for the first time. And so um, in 2008, I think it was, I... Um, I was with some folks from Global Voices, which was this is still this incredible project that um, really tries to cover the entire world through looking at what people are saying on blogs and social media, and ended up, um, long story short, ended up getting in touch with uh, Ethan Zuckerman who connected me with a job interview at the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard. Um, and soon enough, I was uh, helping to manage a project that studied government internet censorship all over the world. One of the questions we always ask guests on, on the podcast is, uh, what can the world learn from Denmark and what can Denmark learn from the world? We're a Danish-based podcast, obviously. Um, your hook in all this is that you'll be appearing at the Internet Week Denmark Festival this year to talk about some of these issues uh, in a forum that tries to uh, civically discuss how we keep people first in the digital age. I'll ask the question to you in a slightly different way. What can the world learn from maybe Europe? And what can Europe learn from the world with regards to exactly this whole idea of surveillance capitalism, of online censorship, and so on? Sure. So, I mean, I, I was actually prepared to answer your question about Denmark, funny enough, but I'll start with Europe. Um, I think that what the world can learn is really the a different mode of thinking about privacy. Um, Germany is exemplary, sorry, Germany is exemplary in this regard. Um, you know, the history here of surveillance has obviously made people very wary of privacy, but all across Europe, for the most part, um, I see very thoughtful and deliberative thinking around what kinds of privacy protections uh, we should have both offline and on. Um, and this is obviously exemplified by the, the global data or general data protection regulation, the GDPR. Um, and just to throw in my little Denmark cap here, um, MEP Karen Malkior, who I've known since long before she was elected, um, I think she's doing some of the best work on internet regulation at the moment, and she's a very thoughtful, um, thoughtful politician. Something that I, you know, I don't see very often when it comes to internet thinking. <laughs> Another question we always ask is if you had three book recommendations, three books that either have meant something very, very important to you, near and dear to your heart, or three books you would recommend people could read to understand a little bit more about your topic, what would those three books be and why? Obviously, I think Shoshana Zuboff's book, Surveillance Capitalism, is absolutely key to understanding the field. Um, it is a very long book, and she's done a lot of great interviews. So for folks who don't have the time, look her up regardless. Um, I think another one here that I would look at is Ron Diebert's recent book. He's done incredible work. I mean, his Citizen Lab, which is uh, the, the institute he runs in Toronto, um, does some of the best research on the ways in which governments and often in co uh, cooperation with companies are violating human rights uh, through surveillance. So he's a great thinker on this. Um, and the third one, 
partially about the internet, partially not, but um, I've just started reading it, but I, I can't recommend it enough, is uh, Ethan Zuckerman's new book, which just came out a few days ago, and I think he's doing a talk on it later today, um, but it's called Mistrust, Why Losing Faith in Institutions Provides the Tools to Transform Them. Um, and this one, you know, I mean, I, I, I really trust Ethan's thinking on this. I've known him for many years, and like I said, I mentioned him because he, he helped influence my early career and was a great mentor to me in those early days, um, but you know, he's done a lot of really important thinking about the past decade. And it, I, I guess one of the things that I really appreciate about all of these thinkers is that none of them are, are 100% certain all the time in their ideas. Um, and I think that what we need right now is more complexity in the way that we think. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm a little mistrustful of anyone who's, who's sure of their answers in this current moment. Jillian, thanks a lot for being here. <laughs> Thank you for having me. We'll see you at Internet Week Denmark in uh, May 2021 in August. Can't wait.